morning, everybody. It's Friday, June 24th, 2022. It's about 11 a.m. on the East Coast. And I am Lisa Selberg, founder and CEO of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, joined today for a podcast by Dr. Steve Amen of the Mayo Clinic. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Um, I want to start this conversation with kind of a setup. And the setup is this. If you're listening to this podcast or if you're on this Facebook page, you've undoubtedly heard that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the leading cause of sudden death in young athletes. And while this fact remains, we believe to be true today, it does not mean that everybody with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is at extreme risk due to exercise. And this may seem a little confusing for some. So it has been an issue that the HCMA has been dealing with literally since day one and probably since Dr. Amon saw his first hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patient all those years ago. So it's, it's been the constant conversation. And we have evolved over time in this conversation with our understanding of HCM, risk factors, understanding who is at risk of sudden cardiac arrest and who is not. We do not take the topic of sudden cardiac arrest in the young lightly. It's a very important topic, but in reality, it's a, it's a very small number of individuals who are affected negatively. Um, each year, we believe there's probably 30 athletes uh, in the United States who pass away from HCM as the underlying cause of death. So it's out of 325 million people, it's, it's still a very rare event, one we would like to abolish, but a rare event all the same. Um, so if you're diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and you go to the internet and you see the first things come up of sudden death athletes, HCM, it's gonna scare you. We wanna take a little bit of that fear out and give a more balanced approach to help you and your family identify the, the best pathways to live a happy, healthy life. As many of you know, my favorite quote from my favorite poem is Mary Oliver, Summer's Day, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. You have one round, one vessel to do it in, and we want people to live the most filling lives possible. So Dr. Ahmed, let's start out this conversation with the concept of shared decision-making as stated in the guidelines. Can you tell patients and listeners what that actually means? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question and it, and, it, and it causes some confusion and consternation for some. And it's, it's really just a new name for an old concept. And that is there should be a dialogue between the patient and their doctor or provider about what their goals are and what they hope to do. And then to have some role in determining what level of risk or what level of intensity they want to enter their medical therapy. It's not unique to HCM. We, we do this across all kinds of things. And in fact, the whole idea of informed consent before surgical procedures is a form of shared decision-making. To people who are really into the field of shared decision-making, it's not quite adequate because the language we use on legal informed consent documents doesn't doesn't uh, communicate as well as it should. But the whole idea of shared decision-making, we says, if you and I are talking about uh, uh, an activity or a therapy that, you're, that, that you are brought to the table, we talk about what the risks are, what the benefits are, and what's your goals for your life and what's important to you to help craft the decisions around those things together. It is not me putting the decisions on you. It's also not me telling you that you must do this next. 
Um, and so it's, it's meeting in the middle uh, and having a dialogue about what's important. So many times I speak to people who are considering going to an HCMA recognized center of excellence for an evaluation and care. And they, they try to stack the deck a little bit and say, who's going to let me do more exercise? And they shop around to get somebody to tell them what they want to hear. Yeah. You want to address that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's a reality and, and different people have different intensities of providers have different intensities of feelings about the subject, but that's, again, we're not inventing the wheel here in HCM. When you talk about patients who have high cholesterol, there are some providers who are really aggressively going after that, managing, lecturing, firing brimstone about what you should put in your body, what you should not put in your body, et cetera, and others who, who are more moderate in their recommendations. It's, it's not dissimilar in the discussion about exercise, generally speaking, it gets, it gets more slanted the higher the intensity of level exercise goes, but that, that's the reality. But that's also, I mean, I, I just, there was actually just a news story on the morning news here in town today. There's a local provider who after 40 some years of practice is retiring and his advice to the news reporter was, my advice to everyone is find a provider that you like talking to that you have dialogue with because then you're going to be getting your treatment goals and your plans uh, for your life uh, aligned. Um, so, so again, not trying to be dogmatic. Uh, if you're someone who wants to have someone, I mean, some of us want to be more aggressive. Some of us want to be less aggressive and, and finding a provider that aligns with your general philosophy on approach to life is not a bad thing. I couldn't agree more. And we do have some diversity of thought within the HCM community, and it's okay to get different opinions and find the one that balances for you. In part, that's why we do podcasts and webinars so patients can get an understanding of where is this person coming from? Is this a provider that I really want to work with or not? And yep. we all aren't the right match for everybody. So right. it's, it's great to find that, that uh, understanding of what the philosophy is. Um, for today's podcast, we are going to focus primarily on adults. Some of the items that we're going to talk about are good advice for the under 18 population. But when we start talking about competitive athletics, when it relates to minors and children, I'm going to refer you to the recent webinar that we held for adolescent and pediatric HCM, which is available on our YouTube site which has a deep dive on those particular issues as they relate to children and, and adolescents. So for the purposes of today, we're really talking about grownups, adults. So Steve, what do you recommend in terms of general activity level for the middle of the bell curve average HCM patient? Yeah. Yeah, so, so, I mean, the reality is being physically active is healthier for, for nearly every subset of, of patients around the world. And even specifically with an HCM, data have now come out that shows that low to moderate intensity carries the same health benefits for patients with HCM as it does for other people. It helps maintain body weight. It, it, it 
helps to stave off type 2 diabetes. It maintains cholesterol. It helps hypertension. And, and it has all those long-term benefits that being engaged in an active lifestyle conveys without increasing the risk at that level. So our, our, our advice to patients is that they be active to some degree. Um, and it doesn't have to be record-breaking workouts. It's, you know, uh, again, a low to moderate intensity exercise is going for walks or bike rides where you feel like you're making some effort. And, and because so many of our patients are on drugs that alter heart rate, I don't usually talk to patients about heart rate ranges for them because that's altered pharmacologically in some patients. So I usually talk about, again, you should feel like you're doing some effort. Probably you should be able to speak a full sentence without gasping for breath, but maybe not a full paragraph. Uh, and that kind of puts you into that low to moderate intensity exercise. Uh, and again, for many of our patients, we're trying to get them to start exercising because they've been sedentary for any number of reasons. Uh, and so if someone can only maintain that level of exercise for 15 minutes, that's fine. We start there and we'll do 15 minutes, five days this week. And next week we'll do 16 minutes. And the next week we'll do 17 minutes and gradually build up to where patients are doing 30 to 60 minutes most days of the week uh, at that level of intensity. So we, we talked before the podcast about different mechanisms that you can use to track this and, and yours was 30 to 60 minutes of mild to moderate intensity activity. Um, I personally have used my Fitbit, my tracker for steps and okay, we all get good and bad days and we have COVID times and we were acting different. So I started to track my Fitbit and saw what I was doing on average and said, okay, I need to increase that by a little bit every day. So my personal goal every day is 8,500 steps. Mm -hmm. I don't hit it every day. And some days I blow it out of the water and you know, I'm doing 15,000 steps. Yeah. But if you can just kind of keep an idea of where you are, I also suggest that people use that for recovering from surgeries, et cetera. If you're able to do a thousand steps today, try to do 2000 tomorrow as you're recovering. So there's, there's not one metrics to use. You can right. use different things that work for you in your life. And the, the point is we want almost everybody yeah. to be moving as much as they possibly can. Yep. Yeah, be, being active is better than being inactive. And, and there are good days and bad days. And even, I mean, everyone is supposed to take days off. I mean, your, your, your body actually needs that for recovery. And, and for many patients, as you kind of hinted at it with HCM, you have the good days and bad days where your symptoms are more active on a, on a given day. And, and, and the, the goal is to not, to honor that, to not feel bad you're not getting your steps in that day or whatever, whatever activity you're doing. And just to, just to recover from that and do it the next day and look at longer trends. If you find that your activity level has been dropping over a month or six months, well, that means we probably need to do something so we can get that slope going the right way. But if it's you did less on Tuesday than you did on Monday, that's not a panic moment. That's a, let's just, you know, gradually build back up from there. So, so yeah, I, I think that, I think that tracking, I, I track a lot of my physical activities that I do. And I think that it's helpful to keep an eye on it. It's also easy to go overboard and pay too much attention to numbers and not attention to how, how you're feeling and doing as a person in the 360 degrees of your life. So, so 
but that's a that's a personality issue that probably is you know a one-on-one -on -one conversation with your provider if you're totally focused on a heart rate number or a speed or number of steps and you get upset when that number isn't achieved then we need to come up with a different way of monitoring your activity levels so i will add in another component of exercise and that is rest and good sleep is really yeah, important yeah yeah, yeah I, I mean to me you know one of my personal health things this year is focusing on my sleep because it is it is so important that we get rest it lets your body get out of stress mode um, and so good sleep hygiene, uh, not eating or drinking too close to bedtime, getting adequate blocks of sleep are super important. And this is off topic for today, but we certainly have seen uh, that there is a over-representation of sleep disorder breathing or the sleep apnea spectrum amongst our patients with HCM. And if you've got that, it's better to treat that because the long-term effects of having your body always stressed are not good. So that is a great topic for another conversation because I get that question a great deal uh, about the impact of sleep apnea syndromes or spectrum on HCM. So We'll put yeah. a pin in that one for another conversation. Um, so we know that sleep is important. We know that activity is important. So what if you want to do more than yeah. just 30 to 60 minutes of mild to moderate walking? You want to do something bigger. You want to join a, an exercise program, a Zumba class, a gym. What yeah. about that? Yeah, so, so this really starts to, so, so everyone needs to be getting a foundational level of, of activity as we just discussed. And then the question is for the people who want to do more, and this is where that initial fact that you put out there at the start of the podcast today that the number one cause of death among athletes may be HCM. And so what level of activity is high enough, what is too high, et cetera. And, and, and it's a challenging conversation with each patient. I've had a number of patients who have said, well, can I continue playing on my rec league tennis ladder or, or whatever? And historically, the way I've approached that is, well, it depends on what your mentality is going into it. If you're a win or you're disappointed kind of person, that means you're going to start, start ignoring signals from your body that it's time to stop in order to win that point or win that game. And probably we don't want you in that position to be ignoring signals your body's giving you. If you're out there hitting the, the ball around with your partner or spouse or whatever, and it's a conversation and you're just, you know, kind of hitting the ball back and forth, uh, that's probably not a big deal. So it has to do with the intensity levels, with the theory that the higher the intensity, potentially the higher the risk there is to the individual. And so there it's a bit of a bit of a negotiation with understanding what the patient's approach to that activity is. Um, yeah, so it gets back to that shared decision. What, what are you trying to achieve by being in that tennis league? Are you trying to be number one or are you just trying to have social time with friends who happen to also participate in that activity? And let's pay attention to signals. If you're feeling dizzy that day, if you're feeling sluggish that day, that's not the day to push. That's the day to maybe, maybe dial it back and take care of the social aspects of that group and not the competition aspects of that group. Um, oh gosh, I just lost my train of thought of where I was going with part of that discussion. Um, I'll bring you back in with this. Yeah, yeah. So if a patient 
wants to do more than walk and they want to join a gym, let's say. Yeah, yeah. And how would you recommend that they balance what they're doing at the gym and the level of intensity? I, I know the old rule was lighter weights, higher reps are probably better. Yeah. High weights are not good. Free weights are more dangerous than machines. So how does somebody learn all of this in a safe yeah. way? Yeah, it's it, 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 it's a great question. Um, and if you're going to go to a gym, it's, pro it's probably good to work with one of the trainers that's there and and talk to them about the about the fact that you have hcm uh and this is what my cardiologist and i have decided is you know is the types of things that i ought to be and help me understand where you know what i can do here at your facility um again for someone so we all have different abilities right for some people going for a walk down the street causes them to have that i can't speak more than a sentence without gasping for breath right for some people, they're just more naturally physically fit. And so for them, a jog does the same thing. And, and so I think that, again, if you're, if you're doing something, you can sustain that same intensity for minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. By definition, you are in the aerobic training zone. Uh, and, and therefore not likely, you know, causing ischemia or oxygen that deep within the heart muscle, those kind of things. And so you're probably okay. And I'm emphasizing the word probably because we don't know on an individual, but that's part of that discussion with the patient. If it's important to patient X that they do more than walk, they, they just feel like they need Okay, so if, you, if you're doing sustained efforts and you're not sprinting for road signs and you're not chasing down the person you see in front of you because you want to show that you're better than they are, then it's probably going to be okay. Um, and you can choose to do that, recognizing I can't look you in the eye and swear it's perfectly safe. Right? I mean, I, there's, there's no guarantees uh, about this. Uh, for, for, for resistance training, I also talk about being able to breathe while you're doing that. I mean, the, and the issue is twofold. One is obviously if you have obstructive HCM and you're bearing down to you're doing Valsal maneuvers, you're likely increasing your gradient and so you are putting yourself actually at risk of injury to your head, arms, legs, whatever, because you might drop the weight if you get lightheaded and start to pass mm -hmm. out if you're bearing down so much. So, not, so breathing normally while you're lifting is important. In theory, um, you know, you, you induce all the protein level things that cause muscle growth probably doesn't cause the heart muscle to get sick in reality. It, it's got different growth signals and different different muscle cellular structure, but it's probably good just to stay away from the super heavy lifting uh, if, if you're an HCM patient and go with the resistance training that we know is effective at lower weights and higher reps. It helps bone density, helps weight loss, helps diversity of exercise you don't get bored doing the same thing every day all you know having a, having a balance of exercise is helpful as well so so that's that's the way i approach those conversations so i remember years ago a conversation at one of the hcma meetings about going more for tone than bulk yep. yeah yeah you want to be in good shape you want to be toned but you don't want to bulk bulk up 
Yeah, although I mean, I th I think in in reality, if, if if you if you read the the literature or the marketing materials on you know from gyms, some of the thoughts around that has changed as well uh, about what is actually a toning exercise and what's a bulking exercise and what's a strength exercise and those kind of things. And that's where, again, working with a personal trainer or a, or a gym trainer to help understand what you're trying to do and this is my limitations can can help you dial in on on the types of activity that will be most beneficial okay so we've not heard yet dr almond say oh you have hcm you can't exercise yeah um is there a time where somebody shouldn't be exercising with hcm well yes i mean that the, the, there is i mean you know you know you have someone I mean, patients have had cardiac arrest during exercise. Yeah, there are obviously extreme situations where patients shouldn't exercise. I mean, you know, a patient who had cardiac arrest or fainted during exercise in the middle of evaluation, we're probably going to pause their exercise activities until we get things sorted out. Um, there, there are people in whom we do their MRIs and echoes and those kind of things, and we see their heart function deteriorating. Um, we're we're going to pause them with those type of things. But if we take a stable patient with HCM who is asymptomatic, then that's when we can have these conversations about what level of intensity of exercise do you hope to achieve and, and, and how can we best counsel you around the potential risk of that. Obviously, patients who have symptoms, we have work to do to minimize their symptoms to allow them to get to that healthy level of exercise that we talked about earlier. So. Uh, for the symptomatic patients about their, their medical therapy of their symptoms, for the asymptomatic patients, those are the ones that, that really are more interested in maybe pushing the boundaries a bit. Okay, so let's talk about those people for a yep. bit. Yep. Um, the, the I want to do even more than just go to the gym. I want to train for a major event. Yep. I want to be on a a competitive recreational team a club team or then we'll go into the professional or collegiate level but let's yeah. just take the adult wanting to be on a professional organized team that is rather competitive yeah yeah so this this i mean i, I am going to go back to address this even at the club level to the to your opening statement and that is the observational studies where people have looked at the records of dead athletes yep. and found that HCM represents anywhere between 10 and 30 some percent of those things. Obviously that's an overrepresentation of HCM in that population versus the living population. So it is reasonable to conclude that competitive athletics plus HCM must have some risk involved with it. Uh, it, it can I pause you on that one for one second? Of those athletes who do die mm -hmm. and we identify HCM as an underlying cause, mm -hmm. it's very unusual that they were identified, treated, yep. Yep. and managed. Correct. It's not, we do have it happen where it can yep. be an identified treated person that has been assessed and not found to be at high risk and unfortunately succumbs to an arrest, but that's not the norm. That's the exception to the rule, correct? Yep, okay. right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. His historically, I mean, 
young athletes who die suddenly were felt to have no diseases ahead of that. That's why they were, you know, um, surprised. But so when, when you think about those studies, what they, what they say is that it's higher risk to be an athlete with HCM than it is to be an athlete without HCM. Yep. Right? It also happens to be higher risk to be a chess player with HCM than it does to be a chess player without HCM or a cardiologist with HCM versus a cardiologist without HCM. So, but, so there, there's really no debate about that fact. That's not the challenge that our patients, your clients, you know, uh, have. They're living HCM patients who want to know, can I be an athlete or not? It's actually a different question. Right. And, and the, the, the more recent studies looking at HCM patients who chose to continue participating in sports, perhaps with an ICD that they had implanted because they had a reason for an ICD, those studies so far are not showing excess deaths or excess complications in the patients with HCM who continue to be active. Now, how do you make sense of those two things together? Yeah. Yes, probably is it increased risk to have, a, to have HCM and be an athlete, but the incremental risk over just having HCM if you choose to be an athlete is probably small enough that the studies can't detect that yet. And in order to detect that, we would need very large studies for a decade or more to determine that. So yes, there is probably some increased risk at the most intense levels of exercise, we can't really quantify the magnitude of that, but it isn't showing up in the studies that are going on now, and particularly even non-lethal arrhythmias seen on ICDs, we're not even seeing higher signals there. So the, 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 the dichotomy or the spectrum, I should say, of opinions amongst cardiologists who have great understanding of HCM is some take that, including myself, and saying, maybe I should stop being so dogmatic about you can't be a, a, an exerciser and an athlete if you have HCM, as long as you and I have a thorough conversation with the fact I can't guarantee you there's zero risk, but if this is important to you, and you articulate what those reasons are, and you articulate you understand the risk, then I shouldn't just automatically disqualify you for that. So the, the, let's dive into the word disqualify. Yeah. So there are obviously activities. You can't tell somebody you're disqualified for going for a walk. You can right. do that on your own. You're a human being, yep. you have free will. But yep. if you're joining a team, yep. you may be required to get medical clearance right. to be on that team. Yep. So this turns into a third entity yep. being part of the decision-making process yep. and they legally have rights to do so. And they legally yep. can rest on their medical expert determining the risk is too high for the tolerance of that league. And Correct. they can say, you can't play here. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm speaking from the standpoint of the, the, the doctor of the patient and, and the patient wants to choose to pursue being more active. And unless there's something, you know, high risk about the testing we've done that makes us all nervous, that patient may choose to let's choose basketball. I, I want to keep on playing basketball because it's important to me for various reasons. 
that's that that individual can make that choice just like we all make choices based on doctor's advice and other conditions that we can maybe get into that doesn't mean i can make the university of x accept that patient they have their own medical and medical legal teams who may say the university of x is risk averse and we just don't want to be in the business of, of even having the potential for something happening. We're going to say no. That is perfectly within their right. That is the third party involved. The University of Y may say, gosh, we understand this and you understand this and, and, and we've got an agreement. And, you know, we're willing to, to, to work with you on keeping you safe, but allowing you to participate in something that's a life dream or something like that. So you can't make individual teams say yes. You can allow the patient to not be excluded from all teams. And when they're making those decisions, mm -hmm. it, it's they take input from the individual's doctor. Mm -hmm. So the conversations that you have with your chosen healthcare provider um, the higher the level of expertise in HCM is probably going to yep. get you closer to where you want to be if it's safe for you to be there. And no matter the level of activity, now I'm going to kind of go backwards yep. through everything we've talked about. We need to be just a little bit more aware of where we're exercising, what's around us, who's around us. If you're in a gym, do they have an AED? If you're on a sports field, do they have a good emergency response plan and an AED available? If you have an ICD, probably not as important as the AED be there, but you don't know what's going on with your co-captain co or your other players on the field. So you want to have a good plan and it's never a great exercise to, or idea to exercise alone. Mm -hmm. Right. So those 24 hour gyms where you can go in at 11 o'clock at night, probably not a place HCM patients should be hanging out. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair, and and that's certain, certainly something that Dr. Acker and I have talked about before. If you're going to participate on a team, they need to have AEDs and personnel that can use the AEDs around. So, yeah, I think that would be wise. Okay, so we do have one question coming in right now. We'll we'll get back to this team thing in a second. Um, so going back to somebody who is a symptomatic HCM, they've had a VO2 and it's depressed. They're mm -hmm. they're not at normal level for their age and, and, and uh, gender. Um, how do you help them find their right exercise level so yeah. they don't backslide and get worse? Is there a good answer? That's a, that's a great question. So, so, so one of the things that's interesting is that even when you look at elite level athletes who have HCM, their VO2s on average are lower than they should be. Um, so it's so having a low VO2 on treadmill doesn't necessarily predict that you're going to feel awful when you exercise. But to the question that, that that's also in in there is how do you help someone be active enough that they don't get more deconditioned or lose more exercise capacity and then again it comes back to those simple principles uh, it, it, we both say you, you start with what you can do you try to gradually increase the intensity you get plenty of rest and recoveries so that you can gradually increase over long periods of time not short periods of time um and and it's it's taking what you can do today and gradually building upon that Okay, I hope that answered your question. If you have other questions, you can post them now. Um, so going back to the competitive sports thing. Yep. Are there 
sports that might pose a higher risk than others? In, in theory, yes. I mean, you know, you, you look at sports that involve super intense bursts of energy, super, you know, basketball, soccer or football, depending on which side of the Atlantic Ocean you live on, um, uh, have, have more burst sports and high intensity things versus something that is that is not quite so bursty. Um, and they and, and I think that the that those high intensity intervals, and I'm gonna I'm using that term specifically because it segues to my next comment, do give us all more pause when we're when we're talking to someone. Again, someone who is running recreationally 10 or 10k road races well to run a 10k you're not you're not sprinting you're you're doing a, a sustained effort you know so so that might be safer so 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 i think i think all of us have have it always gives us more pause when there's short bursts of activity uh maybe in rapid succession that might might be more triggering of arrhythmias that said, there have been studies conducted and are being conducted regarding high-intensity interval training in patients with HCM. Mm -hmm. I have only seen the abstracts from those studies and not seen the formal publications yet. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing those and seeing if we will be able to change that recommendation or if that confirms the fact that we avoid that. And, and, and we really can't make any comments until we see the full data and peer-reviewed journals and those types of things. But people are studying this uh, in a way that should provide more clarity around that. Um, yeah, so I know Ben Levine is very interested yep. in the topic and uh, we actually helped recruit a number of patients to that trial. And um, it's I interesting to see how it went. It's a, it's a super important trial and really looking forward to, to looking at it in more detail. So you alluded to some other studies that were going on, which a number of people that I know are watching are part of, and that's the LiveHCM trial. Yep. And that's been collecting data for about five years now. Yep. And we have lots of different sports represented. Yep. And, you know, even the enrollment was interesting that I think 10 or 12% had been varsity level athletes in, in high school or college and continue to live a very active life. And there's been very few significant events in this registry. Um, but there's been, to my knowledge at this point, no deaths, a um, couple ICD shocks, but these are people with underlying arrhythmias and viewed to be at high risk anyway. Mm -hmm. um, whether the activity had anything to do with their shock doesn't even seem to be correlated at this point. It wasn't during activity uh, mm -hmm. in most cases. Um, and there's like one NSVT while on a treadmill. Um, so we're probably safer than we originally thought. Yep. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. And again, I mean, you know, when you first see reports about that overrepresentation of HCM athletes, I mean, the safest thing to do is say, let's just not do it, um, right? But but then as we learn more and, and we don't want to take being a healthy human being away from people uh, for maybe extending data from the most extreme of exercisers down to what we should all be doing as part of life, right. uh, then we can grow that. And then as we get more and more data, then perhaps we can learn that that slightly more aggressive exercise will be okay for, for, for patients. So it, it is a very challenging conversation. And there are, I mean, this is, this is very much um, 
an eye of the beholder in terms of the the HCM expert community. I mean, they're, they're I mean, but it's also not surprising when you think about other therapies and interventions we do. Yep. Some people are quicker to recommend surgery than other people are. Some people are more aggressive about certain medications than other people are. So, so varied opinions aren't necessarily a bad thing. I recognize they represent a confusing thing for, for patients to have to navigate, but that's, that, that's the, you know, biology is really black and white. Uh, and that's particularly true in HCM. So, Taking the concept of an active life, mm-hmm. okay. Um, people work all day, yeah, for the most part in this country. And when they get home at night, there's not a lot of energy left for a lot of HCM patients. Yeah. And the question is, do I take this energy that I have left? Do I go exercise with it? Do I rest? How do you help people find a balance? between trying to be, you know, our average age of diagnosis is 40. So we're like out there in the work world. We've got kids, we've got parents, we're in the middle. How do you encourage people to find balance? Yeah, that's a really important concept because we all, I mean, I'm a big believer in balance in in every respect. Um, So um, one of the first conversations is, I mean, for me, I also am more at the end of the day. I, I always talk myself out of exercise if I try to do it after work. So that's why years ago I moved my exercise to before work. Now that works for me. I don't mind getting up at a crazy time in the morning uh, and, and doing that. But for some patients, then maybe that leaves them worn out for a job that's physically demanding as well. So you have to have those conversations and try to figure out how to get adequate levels of exercise. There, 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 there are probably some jobs that have enough physical activity built into them that it's not as crucial for that individual to add exercise afterwards. But I say that with this caveat. There were studies done years ago that showed that there was incremental benefit to doing non-job-related physical activity, even if you had a physical job. Probably as much around mental stress relief. Now, when you're on the job and getting physically active, you're not not inducing the endorphins and the relaxation and all those kind of things that also provide benefits. But again, if a person has a very physical job, I'm not likely to be twisting their arm about getting the 45 minutes of moderate intensity, you know, exercise in five days a week. They they are being active. I mean, the the issue with our current society is we stop being foragers and farmers and we started being computer driven people and so we're not getting activity that our forefathers ancestors um, got centuries ago so but for the person who has a more sedentary job then it's really about trying to find the balance of well if, if right now 30 minutes of exercise just totally incapacitates you let's do 15 minutes maybe twice a day and 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 get that in and we can gradually build from there is it something that you and your partner and your dog can go for a walk in the evening? So that counts as physical activity. It's not, it's not formal exercise, it's being active. And, and that's a good thing. And so trying to find things that blends in their family, their loved ones, their hobbies to that activity levels, it doesn't have to be a physical gym piece of gym equipment or running shoes that, that defines your activity level. It can be things that you do to enjoy your life. I've been getting mixed messages on exercise my whole HCM life, which started at age 12. 
so do I, don't I, can I, can't I, I was grounded from everything out of you know, <laughs> school. I couldn't do any of that. Like they wouldn't let me take gym class you, because you they were, were grounded. Is that, is that because you were misbehaving and your parents grounded you? No, it was because the school didn't trust me. Oh, okay. School didn't trust They were afraid of me. Yeah. Um, okay. They literally told me they were afraid of me. And I'm 13, 14 years old and I want to do gym class. And they told me, literally, the nurse looked at me, she goes, no, we're afraid of you. Which wow. is great for the psychological well-being of a 14-year-old yeah. Yeah. Jersey girl. Yeah, that, that left for some interesting conversations elsewhere. But that's a whole other story. That's a podcast in and of itself, my high school years. Um, but they wouldn't let me. So these messages were in my head for many years. I made the nurse scared. I made the gym teachers scared. So I got scared. And then complications of HCM came up. I had, you know, my stroke, my, you know, defibrillator implants, family members die. So I'm like, I I don't know what to do. I'm just going to try to coast through this with as little activity as possible. Well, that came back in a bad way in my 30s and turned into weight gain. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, okay, I got to get rid of this. This is not good. And I had to try to start to exercise and nobody ever taught me how. Yeah. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to run. I didn't know how to make a stride when I was running and my knees didn't like it. So I had yeah. to learn how to exercise as an adult. And I even scared the people at the gym a little bit. So getting everybody on the right page and knowing how far to push myself before I would fall over. And I almost did a few times. It was, it was, it was a little scary. But I did it with the encouragement of my then well-thought-out HCM team Mm -hmm. to say, no, 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 you should be able to do this, this, and this. And and it was tailored to me, Mm -hmm. knowing that my heart wasn't in great shape. But I knew that I had to do something because if I did nothing and I ended up going transplant, my recovery would be much harder and I might have more complications. So I started to go to the gym. All right. I turned into a gym rat for a while. I was like four or five days a week and I was pushing it too hard. And then I was on the couch for a while. And then I found out that three days a week was my number. And two of those days I could do higher intensity in the middle. I could do stretching and that worked for me. And it helped me get into transplant in decent shape so that my recovery was easier. And now I'm just a 50 something year old woman with orthopedic issues that are annoying. And that's what's holding me back. So you can find balance, even if you're heading to transplant, you can find a way to do this in con- consultation with your team. So we have some questions here. Um, Amber um, is talking about her 14 year old child who has obstructive HCM and is restricted from activities. Um, I would encourage you to go watch uh, the big hearted warrior tour on adolescence um, and make sure that you are consulting with a high volume center of excellence who understands this unique age, this unique anatomy, and it can help guide you individually appropriately. Steve, any comments on that? No, I agree 100%. A different type of question. My brother has HCM. We believe my father may have had it, but he passed away. My brother was tested for mutation gene, but it wasn't on the panel. So you're no mutation found, which makes you the more common person, mm-hmm. which is about 65%, 70% by new state data. I went for an echo. My heart seems fine. I go to orange theory where they push your heart rate way up. Yeah. Okay. So where you have your echocardiogram and who interprets your echocardiogram 
may be important based upon your family story that you've just shared with me here, Maria. Um, so it's going to be really hard for us to comment on what you should be doing at Orange Theory without knowing that somebody did a good echo on you and was really looking for the phenotype that might be in your family. Steve? Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And so this, this person is clearly someone who wants to do higher levels of effort. If they're, if they're doing the orange theory-based things, for those of you who don't know, it's, it's very much focused on improving your VO2 max, which means you have to get into some pretty intense training zones. That person probably should be consulting or their family should be consulting with, with a more expert HCM center just to have that conversation. If the echo is normal, then there, then that patient is going to be okay uh, to do that. Even, even amongst gene positive individuals, if the echo is normal, we don't put restrictions on those individuals. So it is, it is, but it does depend on the echo. And as Lisa, as you said, it depends on the quality of the echo and the intensity of the interpretation to make sure that we're not, that we're, we're looking at the whole echo and not just one segment of one wall. Okay, so the Maria, I'd be more than happy to talk with you if you want to call the office and set up an appointment. We can go over where the echo was done, and I can give you some great patient navigation ideas as to how to know the quality of that echo, and then you can make your decisions accordingly. Um, so Sam is saying that his fear about working out is real, and he's connecting with what I'm saying. Um, which makes him afraid to go to the gym or do any physical activity alone. So Sam, mm -hmm. get a buddy. Yep. Get somebody that you're comfortable with, somebody who understands that you're scared and it's okay to be scared. It's okay to you know, talk to your friend and go, look, I'm a little nervous. I need, some, I need some support. And I just need to know that A, you're here if I start to not feel well and B, you have an emergency action plan that you know what to do, yep. that it's not just your buddy looking at you going, damn, you're looking bad. No, you have a plan. <laughs> There's an AED presence, so you have some security and yep. you have a plan. And yep. if you can do that and build up your, your, your uh, comfort level, I think that would be important. I would also say, and this is one of my little pet peeve issues, Steve, that I'm going to start talking about in the Medical Affairs Committee. I would love to see exercise prescriptions, not only for the HCM patient, but the family, I would yeah. like to see families learn together what is safe for the HCM member of that family, um, especially children. I would love to see the exercise prescription for the child and the parent be present to know what's normal, what's not normal, what's safe, what kind of shortness of breath is normal for exercise for that child and have a team there explaining that this is okay and this is when you're in trouble. I think we can build a lot more confidence among the patient and the family and thereby we can help them build a better program i don't know if insurance companies are going to pay for it but i want it well, i mean i think i think even you know even short of that i'm a big advocate of having family members loved ones as part of the conversation for all aspects of the hcm management plan for that patient but in particular for these areas that are a little bit more nuanced because more sets of ears means uh, more consensus uh, building around what the plan is and what we want to do. And if there's disagreements, then we can double check. 
it, you're more likely to run into conflicts within a family if the patient shows up alone and has this super intense conversation and then they interpret it for their family at home and they weren't actually part of the conversation. So I, so even if it's not a formal prescription for the family from a exercise physiologist, if I can talk to you and the person sitting next to you about this is what I'm advocating for you and this is how you can help, then we've, then we've, we sort of, we sort of accomplished that. So I want to just take a second on that topic and go back into the pediatric and adolescent age group. I highly recommend in situations where there is um, shared custody, divorces, separations, um, different parental situations, that both parents be there for these appointments. I know that may not be to the liking of one of the adults in the room, but it's really important that the entire family is on the same page. Yeah. I hear a lot of conflict. I can exercise when I'm at mom's house. I can't when I'm at dad's or vice versa. Yeah. And that there's just an inconsistency in understanding. So let's put the kids' needs first and let's work as a family there. It's really yeah. important. Yeah. Um, question from Ann. Okay, so Ann, I'm going to say we're talking about HCM hearts here. Can regular exercise somewhat improve ejection fraction? Hmm. Yeah, probably not. And probably not in HCM because remember the ejection fraction is just a mathematical equation that has a number in the denominator and in HCM that number is small, which means the EF is big and to make an improvement on a big number is statistically hard to do. The benefits of exercise on hearts is usually it helps the relaxation function of the heart over the long term more than it helps the systolic function. And in fact, when you hear about athlete heart, the resting ejection fraction is often lower than it was before that person got into their super intense zone because it's trying to, it's, it's, it's gotten bigger and buying itself more ability to respond to the exercise. So the goal of exercise is not to improve your ejection fraction. It's actually to improve the relaxation function of the heart itself and to improve your vascular tone, muscular tone, so that the heart isn't working so hard when you are exercising. And just for clarification, for those who aren't frequent listeners, what is an ejection fraction? Oh, ejection fraction is the proportion of blood that is squeezed out of a heart with each heartbeat. So if you have 100 units of blood in your heart and 55 units of blood leave the heart when it contracts, your ejection fraction is 55%. Which then leaves 45% of the blood in the vessel right. through the next contraction so you're not priming a dry pump. Right. And it so happens that 55% and above is normal. And in HCM, where do we tend to live in EFs? It, it tends to be in the 60s or higher. Yeah. Um, and we've seen numbers in the 80s, definitely. definitely. But that's not normal. So they're, they're just super normal EFs because we have a thick heart that clamps yeah. shut and pushes that blood out. Yeah. Okay. So I do want to go over one other topic that comes up occasionally uh, in the Facebook group. And that's the role of inflammation in the body. Mm -hmm. And is it better to have less inflammation in the body? And yeah. how does one acquire less inflammation in the body? Because it tends to 
be correlated to how much people can move and exercise when if they have too much inflammation, they can't move so well. Yeah. How does one deal with inflammation in HCM? Yeah, in, inflammation is 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 not it's not good long term in the body. Inflammation is necessary for healing of certain things, but there are medical conditions that cause inflammation in the body, like lupus, like rheumatoid arthritis. You know, there's medical conditions that do that, and getting those diseases treated are important. Getting COVID causes inflammation in your body, as you can attest. I can attest. Even even a cold causes your body to have more inflammation, etc. But there are certain things that, that, that we all, or many of us do, that promote inflammation. Simple sugar intake tends to promote inflammatory responses and sustain inflammatory responses. So sweets, alcohol, uh, lack of sleep. Uh, a, a lot of the things that we know are bad for us, what we've come to learn is one of their mechanisms of action is they actually prolong or promote an inflammatory response. So again, eating a healthy diet that's more plant-based, um, avoiding simple sugar, simple carbohydrates as much as possible. Those are all things that can minimize your inflammatory response and keep you healthier longer. It is, we're not talking here, I mean, there are, there's not like from today to tomorrow effects. We're talking more about longer-term effects of, of minimizing the amount of inflammation you have in your body. And, and taking drugs, taking ibuprofens or naprosins or those kind of things, that is short-term inflammation relief for the sake of relieving pain. Those do not help us beneficially long-term. In fact, in some studies, uh, thinking back into the 90s, there were some drugs that were great anti-inflammatory, but actually promoted cardiac conditions because the body overcompensated for the pathways they were blocking. So, so it's not a pill-based, it's a lifestyle-based. That's a lifestyle. So you brought up taking ibuprofen, which sometimes comes up as well, and we might as well tackle it while we're here. Um, why should people be careful of how much ibuprofen they take? The, the, the main issue is that it's, it is potentially irritating to the lining of your stomach and esophagus, and so you could likely develop ulcers or bleeding from your stomach or esophagus. And then there are these issues that, I mean, again, every medication has an intended effect and unintended consequences. And when you block pathways in the body, your body is going to try to compensate that for that some way or another. So, uh, you know, minimizing the amount of medications you take is probably the best thing to do. But if you have, if you sprained your ankle, uh, then taking ibuprofen for a few days is probably a very reasonable thing to help you feel better. Um, taking ibuprofen every day, um, probably not such a great thing unless there's some treatment plan you're on with your doctor. So that sounds good. Okay. So we have no more questions here. Any final statements you'd like to make about exercise and HCM and work-life balance? Uh, I think you just kind of said it. So I think that balance is the key. Um, we all patients with and without HCM should likely get more activity than we get on a day-to-day -day basis. And trying to fit that into your lifestyle in a way that makes you feel happy and confident is the key. I couldn't agree more. Oh, one last question. Here's a complicated question. I have to for more. Okay, this is getting into consult by, by podcast, so oh, yeah. I'm not gonna be able to get too much into this, Sam. But I do want to address, you have a pressure gradient of 90. 
Um, sort of sending the message. Wait a second. Yeah, you need to call the office and we need to get some more information on this. Um, so your doctor is telling you with a, a gradient of 90 um, that working out should be avoided because it puts stress on your heart, but there's a benefit to working on your heart. Um, we need to talk about what the strategy is, who's involved in your care plan, and get you some great questions to go back with to have a, an educated conversation with your healthcare provider. But, but conceptually, there's balance to be found there as well. So, so, so I agree with what your statement before is understanding that 360 view, which can't really be submitted very well on a podcast chat. So no, that 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 it can't. Matt, your question is a little bit more off topic. Um, that's a general management question, and you can't determine therapy based on wall thickness. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So call the office. We'll help you find a great HCM specialist, and we'll get you all set up because that's what we do here. Um, Dr. Alman, thank you for joining us on Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. We'll see you back here in a couple more weeks, and we'll have another conversation. I'm not quite sure what our topic's going to be yet. We'll figure that out soon. And I appreciate everybody listening today. Have a great so, weekend, everybody. Happy summer. It's officially summer, everybody. Get out there and do something fun. There it's fine. We, we had enough bad weather this year, so go have some fun. Bye, everybody. Have you enjoyed this episode of Tales from the Heart? We hope so. Please visit us at 4hcm.org. Become a member, become a donor, become a volunteer. Great news, everybody. HCM Academy is now available online. What is it? It includes online sessions, learning about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, patient stories about HCM and their management, and an opportunity to join online live with an HCM specialist to go over the slides, ask questions, and dig deeper into your understanding and knowledge of HCM. All CME courses are free, and you can find them at 4hcm.org or at thehcmacademy.com. The Big Hearted Warrior Tour continues. For the latest dates, please check 4hcm.org. And thanks to our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Invitae, and Austin Scientific. Did you know discussion groups are available at 4hcm.org Monday through Friday? Almost every day you can find a discussion group, whether you're interested in learning more about ICDs, pre-myectomy, screening your family. There's a discussion group for you. Even if you just want to learn how to balance your mental health, we have that too. So please join us for one of our live discussion groups moderated by a peer volunteer and you can sign up in advance at 4hcm.org just check the calendar for events. Please contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association at 4hcm.org or by calling our office at 973-983-7429. You can contact the HCMA by email at support at 4hcm.org. Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA, is made possible through sponsorship from Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya, Invitae, and Boston Scientific.